Hello and welcome to Required Reading, a podcast that revisits the most impactful books from our childhood. My name is Erin Bowles. I am a writer-actor and I have a bread machine. Our guest today is Krista Moy. She is a screenwriter, comedian, voice actor, artist, and cat mom based in LA. She has written for the card game The Queer Agenda and the Asian satirical news publication The Lunar Times. She created the web series Food Babies, the ASMR show, and the Twitch comedy talk show Moy Meets World. Her favorite hobbies are healing her emotional trauma, buying too many plants, and karaoke. And you can see her perform stand-up at the Hollywood Comedy and all around LA. Hi, Krista. Hi, Erin. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. Our book today is a play. It is Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. And just going to put it up at the top. This play, if you're not familiar with it, deals with themes of domestic violence, sexual assault, and suicide. So... If that's not how you want to spend your day, all good. Yeah, we'll see you next big time. Big trigger warning there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so it was first performed December 3rd, 1947. 1947 is the first year of the Cold War. It is when the House of Un-American Activities begins investigating communism in Hollywood. SAG implements an anti-communist loyalty oath. There's the Hollywood Ten who are blacklisted. Truman creates the CIA, Department of Defense, and the National Security Council. The Doomsday Clock of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists is introduced. Jackie Robinson becomes the first African-American to play Major League Baseball since the 1880s, and Wataru Misaka makes the roster of the New York Knicks and becomes the first person of color to play in modern professional basketball. And the Soviet Union completes development of the AK-47 rifle, Diary of Anne Frank is published, and H&M opens its first store in Sweden. Oh, wow. H&M? Yeah. yeah. That far back? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Swedish. I didn't know that it originated there. That's really cool. Playwright is Tennessee Williams. He was born Thomas Lanier Williams III in Columbus, Mississippi in 1911. His father was a traveling shoe salesman who was an alcoholic and frequently away from home and had a violent temper. He was a sickly child. His mother was deeply unhappy in the marriage and so like really focused on him and they lived with his preacher grandfather. His father pulls him out of college to work in a shoe factory. He has a mental breakdown and leaves, but Stanley Kowalski, who's one of the characters in this play, is inspired by one of his co-workers at the factory. He goes back to school, drops out, and then studies at the dramatic workshop at the new school. And he said, then and there, the theater and I found each other for better and for worst. I know it's the only thing that saved my life. He moved to New Orleans in 1939 to work for the Works Progress Administration. He was close with his, I believe, older sister, Rose. She is diagnosed with schizophrenia, and then in 1943, she is lobotomized, and she has to be institutionalized for the rest of her life. Williams funds her care and is supposed to have influenced characters in The Glass Menagerie and Streetcar. Glass Menagerie is his first big hit, comes out in 1944. Three years later, we get Streetcar and he wins a Pulitzer for it. So, all that being said, Krista, how did this come into your life? How did this come to you? So, this came to me first in the 11th grade. I was about 16 years old, and it was a required reading for my English class. My favorite English teacher, Miss Kaiser. It all ended up like very kismet because I was really shy at the time. 
And I didn't like reading aloud. I would never volunteer for any class readings. Like it was just too much pressure for me. Yeah. It was way too much because I just like wasn't a confident reader. I was a little slow, but she assigned me the role of Blanche Dubois. Oh my God. Yes. And I realized like how many lines Blanche had. And I was like, oh no, I started to get nervous. But this felt like really different. Like the more I got to know her character and just really drop into the role, like I had never really experienced acting before. This was my first time reading a play like this and having a role assigned to me. So it just felt so effortless and like interactive, like having the different classmates reading different parts. It was way better than just like reading a paragraph and then like going on to the like someone else reads another paragraph, like how typical school reading is. So I really started to like feel the emotions Mm -hmm. and like give to this character and like embody Blanche in a way that was very unexpected. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know at the time what was happening, but all I knew is it was exciting and it was thrilling to be Blanche. And so she continued each day that we would read, she would assign me Blanche every day. And I was just like, yes, like I accepted the task and I loved it and it was the first time that I'd ever really felt connected with a character in such a way that's amazing oh wow yeah it was pretty magical and being so naive at 16 like I didn't really I think grasp the themes of the play I think I sort of knew that it was like hinting at something like dark or bad but I didn't really understand that Stella's in a domestically violent relationship marriage with Stanley. I didn't really understand fully that Blanche was married to a closeted gay man and that like she sort of in a way drove him to suicide and then later like had guilt over it and that inevitably she is raped by Stanley in the end which you know it's alluded to it's not explicitly said. And then Stanley, you know, yeah, like, yeah. it's it's just sort of like, oh, wow, that's, yeah. that's what happens. And so I think for me, it was my own trauma that I hadn't really dealt with. You know, I, I'm a survivor of sexual childhood abuse. And also, I didn't know at the time I was queer. So like, there were many themes that hadn't really unfolded in my life yet that I hadn't named. And that this book kind of pointed toward and the fact that I was assigned Blanche later in life I was like wow like this is pretty wild that this character that's gone through so much trauma I actually identify a lot with like some of the things she's gone through not to like get too (laughs) too heavy with it no no thank you so much for sharing that that's thank you I am still like this is wild that this was in high school for a teacher to give that to you yeah because I think at least in my high school we had to read a Shakespeare play every year I think starting in middle school other than that I think we like read one my senior year that was South African and it was dealing with apartheid and every time we talked about plays everyone was sort of like I went to a very small high school everyone was like oh that's Erin's thing she's gonna like get a real big kick out of it we'll all like go on to the next thing. It'll be fine. But this is just so 
meaty and I was trying to figure out when I read it and I think it might have been my senior year of high school I don't know how Mm -hmm. I was introduced to it I think probably through the movie I've always had a real big love for for classic Hollywood and and the Mm -hmm. the cast is almost identical from the original production except for Blanche who was Jessica Tandy who was a British actress did a couple screen roles but really was was a a huge stage star and Mm -hmm but eventually got an Oscar for Driving Miss Daisy. And I just have to shout out, Carl Malden plays Mitch, and he is one of my favorite actors of all time. He Oh, he's is, so good. He's what so, else is he in? He's so familiar. He's in everything. But yeah. yet I can't be like, I can't tell you. <laughs> I don't right. know. Like, he's one head. of those faces you just, mm-hmm. you're like, I know that face, but yeah. I can't name where I know it. He's always playing, like, second fiddle. He's always playing sort mm-hmm. of like a, a schlub. I don't even know how to yeah. describe it. Just like but a he, really common guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he plays it with such depth and such nuance and and always breaks your heart. He is a memoir I really want to read. But when you picked this, you texted me and you were like, I don't know if this fits. Like, is this yeah. too, too out there? And I loved that you picked this because we are both actors. We are both in entertainment. And I so badly wanted to to see the seeds of that, you know, mm-hmm. where that started. And I mean, it deserves the Pulitzer. It deserves everything. It is such yes, a phenomenal, absolutely. phenomenal work. And... That is so wild that your teacher did that and continued yeah. to pick you. That's what you hope a teacher is to, to find. Yeah. I feel like she just saw something in me probably after I read it the first time and was like, oh, this girl actually like might need this. <laughs> like, I don't know. And yeah. she seemed like a theater person or somebody that appreciated plays and things like that because later we wrote like a one-act play that I actually just like found recently my parents like sent it to me with my yearbooks that I asked for in the mail and like I was going through this play and she's like writing all these notes she's like this is so funny like how did you come up with this and I was like wow like she recognized that I was a comedy queen like even back in the 11th grade before I even knew that I was a comedian like she saw it and was like this is funny and like great dialogue great character descriptions like all these notes are just like so encouraging and I'm so glad that I have this play (laughs) that I wrote in her class and that she assigned that to me as something that I could discover about myself because now you know I love screenwriting and it's one of my favorite things because it's just like creating these characters and giving them life and putting myself and my life experiences into them is like one of the best feelings. Elliot Kazan said something about Tennessee Williams that was everything in his plays comes from his life and everything in his life comes from his plays. Yeah. Tennessee Williams is such a, there, there is such a a hardness in his work that is also such a vulnerability Mm -hmm. and such a gift. I think that he like lived with a lot of the same fears that what happened to Rose would happen to him. And I think characters Mm -hmm. like Blanche really reflect that. And Mm -hmm just I, I was a little worried about this episode because I feel like I can't talk about it I feel like I just sit back and be like man that's good like damn. yeah <laughs> and like it's interesting the film adaptation of it that's like what keeps coming back to me about this play is that at the time like he was talking about things that were just unheard of to talk yeah. about like it was at a time where if your kids can't watch this with you like it shouldn't mm-hmm. exist kind of thinking so like to go where he went mm-hmm. was 
so bold, but also so needed. Yeah. As I was reading it, I kept being like, this has to be like late 50s. And it's late 40s. It is immediately yeah. out of the first year of the Cold War. Yeah. Mind-blowing. And it, it's so electric and so charged. Mm-hmm. There's like an immediate tremendous amount of tension and I think he is such an incredible writer like every everything is amazing to like the character introductions and descriptions are so meaty and fantastic Mm -hmm. and even on the page you can feel the incredible fragility of Blanche and it's in these she she can't even be in direct light he describes her as delicate her movements suggest a moth yeah it's just so good i know and like moths to me are like they're like 50 percent dust like they (laughs) they like hardly exist in a matter form they're like mostly air and dust because that's what they eat is like lint and so when you like smash a moth it just turns to dust yeah and that is such a great description of blanche and in stark contrast to stanley where like the first opening scene that we meet him, he's literally throwing raw meat at his wife. Yeah. And like that is just, you get it. Like yeah. immediately you know exactly who he is. Yeah. He's that guy. Yeah. And I also feel like it's Vivian Lee struggled with mental illness, especially near the end of her life. And I think playing mm-hmm. Blanche, the lines really started to blur between what was her and what was Blanche. Yeah. And with Marlon Brando, I think it's a very similar thing of like, where does the character end and where does the person begin? And I embodies the character and also embodies how we think of him, I think is the same brutality and the same hardness. And I was really interested in the fact that they kept coming back to that he's Polish American. And I looked it up. Polish Americans during World War II were only 4% of the American population, made up 8% mm. of the US military and armed forces. And I think were like very energetically volunteered as soon as the war started. And there was, I think a lot of like, I think Stanley takes a lot of pride in that. And I think something consistent, except for maybe Stella, these characters are so deeply rooted in their past and it is so inescapable. And I think with Stella, it's maybe she's so deeply rooted in this moment. And mm-hmm. and I think when I first read this, it was obviously like, Blanche needs a lot of help. Blanche is, is the character yes. with the problems. And every additional time I visit it, everyone here needs yeah. so much help. Yeah, and I think that's like kind of the beauty of like revisiting it is... When I first read it, I was like, oh, this woman is crazy. Like, she is just, you know, she's unhinged. And the more you get to absorb the story of it and that she comes from this very wealthy upbringing and, like, the men in her family have squandered the wealth and left her family with nothing. And then she goes through all this death and her family and the property and the loss. And then her husband commits suicide, like... This is a lot to hold. On top of that, she's like a sensitive, she's someone that yearns for innocence and youth Mm -hmm. and beauty and art and to have to experience such dark, heavy experiences in life. No wonder she's dissociating and delusional and just trying to cope through her like fantasies like one of my favorite lines is that she's like I don't want realism I want magic Mm -hmm. like it's just 
it's so relatable yeah. to just people that have gone through it yeah. and they don't want what's real because that's too much. And even the censorship of this in the film, it's like mm -hmm. they thought it was too much. And it's like, well, what does that say about people's lives yeah. who have gone through things like this? Yeah. Like they must feel like I can't even talk about this. This is like exactly. too much. You were talking about listening to our Catcher in the Rye episode. And I think both mm -hmm. with that and this, the sensation as a reader and a viewer is so much like these are things we can't talk about. Yes. And that these are, are things that Tennessee Williams himself dealt with. And he was a queer mm -hmm. man. And I can't believe I didn't mention that in my introduction of him. Yeah. <laughs> and yet I have such respect for it on a, a craft level and also such a personal level of like, this is mm -hmm. such a hard thing and a wonderful thing to give to yes. us and to everyone. I think that's something about him that like he's very well known for, but like is just gonna look it in the face and is so messy and so raw and yet so beautiful. Glass Menagerie I've seen, it didn't really do anything for me, but like Night of the Iguana, I think is Tennessee Williams and I've seen the the movie mm. of that. And that is is just the same thing of like, it is sweaty, everyone is bursting at the seams. Mm. It is raw. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Mm. I I wish I'd seen, I've seen more of Tennessee Williams and read more, but this is the only one that, that I've actually digested yeah. and just like couldn't get like it literally has haunted me since the first yeah. time I read it like it just stays with you like Absolutely. it'll just come uh, come up to my mind in various mm -hmm. times in my life yeah. and the dialogue it, it literally you can't forget these lines yeah there are so many really iconic lines like the mm -hmm. the magic of it kindness of strangers is one of the last lines mm -hmm. and yet in reading it i'm also pulling out all of these lines that i don't think ever made an impact on me and yet are so are so meaty and so telling even like this is right at the top i think in english class is always like where does the title come from what does the title mean and mm -hmm. of course the play is so much about desire but when blanche comes in she says um, I had to take a streetcar named Desire to a streetcar named Cemeteries to Elysian Fields. And mm -hmm. if, if you don't know, Elysian Fields or Elysian Fields was part of Greek mythology. It was like the VIP section of the underworld where like oh. heroes and, and people chosen by gods get to like really live it up and indulge and do all their favorite things. That's How... intentional. <laughs> yeah. Like oh, yeah. that's not a mistake. <laughs> That's not a coincidence. And it's a streetcar named Cemeteries. It's so... Mm -hmm. I keep doing that. I keep just being like, damn, wow. Yeah, damn. Yeah. <laughs> like the writing is just... Even like the scene where she's talking to Mitch at the mm -hmm. end and kind of laying it all out and talking so truthfully with him. And then the flower lady comes and she's like, Flores para los muertos. Mm -hmm. And like literally calling back this theme of death and mourning and grief that has been following Blanche and why she left Laurel. And it's like she can't escape it. Like, yeah. even in the midst of her, like, delusions, it finds a way to her to pull her back. Like, this is your grief. Yeah. And it's there. <laughs> and, like, yeah. she literally can't escape it. Mm -hmm. And I think she gets married, like, right out of college. So she would be, like, yeah. 20, 21. She mm -hmm. is, I think, around 30. Yeah. She's described that. 
there is a motif of the blue piano and the music throughout, but mm-hmm. there's also the motif of the recurring song that was playing when her husband died. Yeah. And the- I think... I think I was both like a decade and it is still this raw and it is still this difficult Mm -hmm. that a single song can set you off. And yet it's such a cumulative thing. I think that probably isn't the first cut, but is certainly one of the deepest. And it's also like such a, the way I interpreted it is like that was such a loss of innocence because she really, really, truly loved this person. Mm -hmm. And I think she did. It, it is such a hard thing to be cheated on, like the, the really clear hurts. And yes. then you get to the more softer hurts of like, it's not even about you. It's mm-hmm. just that it is a societal thing. It is, it is a structural yeah. thing. The um, societal like homophobia that was just ingrained in people. Like it was seen as like, I don't know what the yeah. term was. They were like demor- demoral or demented. It mm-hmm. was like, just, yeah. yeah like, it's it's akin to- frowned upon. A mental illness to yes uh, and and what other option did her husband have to to be discovered with another man mm-hmm. in mississippi in the 40s yeah. or i guess even in the 30s what a drastic measure that also feels like a logical measure yeah and for him to be married to blanche in the first place like what else what were his options like that was so common she was probably a safe haven if anything because they could relate on so many things and had similar interests and he wrote poetry like you know i totally get it i you know i i love him and i didn't you know like he's barely a character yeah you said like she is such a, a delicate person and I think any life would be hard for Blanche and she was dealt mm-hmm. like the worst set of cards. Yeah. And I think like this, if he had been straight, would be such a ball. Like they did connect on so many things. He mm-hmm. like really also had the the want for magic and poetry yes. and beauty and art. Just what a what a sad lady. And yet like I know. She like she is trying so hard to keep it together and that mm-hmm. is such is so incredible and the thing that really struck me I think this time reading it is for maybe like the middle third Blanche is the voice of reason trying Mm -hmm. to get Stella out of this relationship yeah yeah like she recognizes she you know she has an aversion to violence Mm -hmm. which like I think you know most people should (laughs) I think that's healthy but you know she's amongst this everybody's violent around her the neighbors are yelling and you know hitting each other upstairs Eunice and her husband and apparently like this isn't the first time Stanley has hit Stella because Eunice says that she's like oh I hope that they turn the hose on you like last time so this is a reoccurring thing and it's very normalized in this French Quarter kind of setting and Blanche is like wait a minute y'all like this is not okay she's very protective of Stella and she's very like hyper vigilant in the way she's interacting with people because she knows like that what they're capable of and especially stanley she's like i think her kind of flirting with him and you know being charming might seem like oh that's just part of her being like a loose woman mm-hmm. or this very like flirtatious woman but rereading it i'm like I think she's actually trying to disarm him and she even says like a man like that you can't stop unless you get him into bed and that's your job and so she knows that like the only way to 
subside a violent man like that is to use your sexuality and so I think that's something that she does and she learns and she's probably learned from all of her goings on with men that that is something a power that she has to create a boundary or to keep herself safe yeah and that she has to leave Laurel because she has had some kind of entanglement sexually or romantically with a student Mm -hmm. and I don't know if I forgot that, but I certainly, yeah, maybe I did forget that. But I think it like, of course, she is like stuck on people that were the age that she was when this like this first event happened. And also, I was thinking like everything about Blanche is fragile and frail. And I think she has learned Mm -hmm. more than anyone how fragile and frail life is Mm -hmm. from all the death around her. And this is probably the only group of people that she feels she has any degree of control or power over. Yeah. Which is just so awful. Yeah. It's just such a tragedy her Mm -hmm. entire life. Yeah. (laughs) Like everything from start to finish has just been sad for her and And it feels so common it feels so deeply every day yeah and it's almost like you know she says like I like the darkness like I find comfort in the darkness like it's become something that she can like recoil into yeah It's so interesting because she, like, I think everything about her externally makes you think she wants to be seen. She is flirty. She's very, like, consumed Mm -hmm. with her looks and yet wants to hide so desperately. And I think that, like, of course you do if you go through that. Of course you want to just shield yourself from absolutely everything. It's such a hard moment when Mitch turns her down. Yeah, because that's really, I wrote down in my notes that when they're talking that first conversation and then they go on their date, that is such a an exciting experience for the reader to be like, oh, wow, like, I really hope like you're rooting yeah. for them. You're really like, they see each other, they both have, you know, he's got a sick mom, like, I think he had like a friend that passed away that like, he had her cigarette case. And, you know, they both experienced sorrow. And I think they recognize that in each other. And that's like such a refreshing thing. I don't know if it's trauma bonding. but it's it's refreshing for them definitely there is a level of like calculation I think as soon as she gets there of like I'm gonna pin my sights on this one but I think it's also like what is left for her right Stanley immediately comes in citing property law which is so bonkers and yet I think like from the playwright standpoint such a, a big thing because like what else does she have like, women yeah. couldn't get credit cards until the 70s. I know. You know. like And, like, and she's still, you know, like you said, she puts on this persona of, like, she comes in immediately and she tells Stella, like, oh, you, you're like a plump little partridge and, <laughs> you know, you have a stain on your collar and, like, only two rooms. Like, where is your maid? And, you know, she's making all of these, like, outward gestures of, like, mm-hmm. oh, you should be doing better when literally all she has is a suitcase yeah. to her name and that's it. And, like... She really is nobody to be talking about anyone's living quarters because she has no living quarters. She really doesn't have anything. And I think it takes her a long time to really come to terms with that. And there's a level of shame 
that I think she has and that's why she's so insecure that's why she doesn't want to be in the light that's why she doesn't want people to see what's really going on and she just like kind of smoke and mirrors with her and like just put throw a tiara on it and some pearls and yeah you know that now you're a queen kind of thinking yeah and I, I think like the frustration Blanchett with Stella at the very beginning is like why aren't you ashamed of this why aren't you trying to keep up appearances mm-hmm. and yet that's like that's all Stella is trying to do to Blanche throughout the entire thing of like it's okay yeah. it's okay like this is exceptional and I think what was also surprising to me is not only like Stanley's sexual appetite but that really animalistic sex is the thing keeping them together besides yeah. like how shitty it is to be a woman in 1947 right yeah. like that's really the glue of their relationship and yeah. even you know in the end when she's crying over Blanche after she's been taken away to the hospital Stanley's comforting her he's like there 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 and Tennessee Williams specifically writes in that he slips his hand in her blouse. Yeah. Even amidst like her crying over her sister being committed because her husband has like assaulted her and then now gaslit her into like thinking she's crazy and committed her. He's still like trying to like move in and like yeah. make it like a sexy time. And it's like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah. And at the top of that scene was I think the most haunting line to me because Stella and Eunice are talking as like Blanche is I think in the bath and Stella goes I couldn't believe her story and go on living with Stanley and then Mm -hmm. Eunice says don't ever believe it life has got to go on no matter what happens you've got to keep on going oh that just gave me a chill like it's it's such a level of denial that people will live in just to keep their narrative alive and like protect whatever it is that they you know their family or whatever it is that they are community they're trying to keep together their reputation the lengths that people will go to deny the truth is incredible meeting that with such truth in this is so so jarring and startling and wonderful and so so necessary Um, yeah I'm, I'm looking at my notes to see, do I have anything to say other than <laughs> just wow? <laughs> yeah. One of the first things Blanche says is, you're all I've got in the world and you're not even happy to see me. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think at that point, like the viewer really understands the truth of that statement. Yeah. You know? Like you said, all she has is this suitcase and she's so locked in the past. She even says like, I weigh what I weighed the summer you left Reeve, the summer dad died mm-hmm. and you left us. And she's been carrying this. She's mm-hmm. holding on to this resentment and think her anger for Stanley is not necessarily like just because he's common and he's violent and all of the reasons that she should find him detestable, but he represents what Stella left her for. Exactly. You know, she left and she like created this life for herself and was just kind of like, all right, like I'm washing my hands of Bella Reeve. Like this is your problem now. And, you know, she stayed, she stayed and she dealt with it and she saw all the horrors. And, you know, I think like, There's something about that that shows her character of, like, how compassionate she is and how she can't just, like, leave. She stays there with Stella because she's worried about 
her safety. Like I, at first when I read it, I thought like, oh, she's just staying because she has nowhere else to go. But then I'm like, well, what if she's staying because she's really like afraid of what will happen to Stella if she does, if she leaves? One of the most iconic lines is the line before they black out to the sexual assault is we've had this date since the beginning. I think Blanche knew that. Mm -hmm. that This is happening to my sister and I have to stay here. And I think what struck me is that Blanche is the younger sister. And like you were saying, I think Blanche shows up, she comments on like how shitty the apartment is, how shitty Stanley is, how shitty all of it is. And the underlying tone is like, you left me for this? Yeah. This is it? I suffered and probably was thinking about like, at least Stella has a great life. At least Stella got out. And this is what you've been doing the whole time. Right. You've been like dealing with this man that clearly is not treating you well. And like you came from such not saying that like if you're wealthy, that's better. Mm -hmm. Like there was a lack of violence and a lack of like the crude behavior and like just... I grew up in upstate New York when I read this and I totally identified with just like feeling like surrounded by these barbarians. Like it was very much like a culture in high school of like, if you're a jock, you're cool. And like getting into fights was cool. And like this sort of primal, like celebration of like the primal things. Mm -hmm. And I was so opposite from that, you know, like I was an artist, I was quiet, I was reclusive, I was just like, why is everybody so like violent? And you know, like, like, nobody's appreciating the art, nobody's Mm -hmm. appreciating the beauty. Like, I, I totally understand where she was coming from in the like, the craving of culture and just the finer things in life when like you're all you are surrounded by are these people that like just want to go to the football game or you know whatever like just hang out and drink beer and that's like kind of the most satisfying thing they could do as bleak as the play is I think like Blanche similar to what you're saying is like there has to be something better and bigger than this and I think Stella is such a tragic character because she is so resigned to it and is like this Mm -hmm. this is life and this is what it is and I think it's amazing that Blanche like still I mean of course she does because it's how you survive is still clinging on to like there has to be something better because she Mm -hmm. has seen so much awful stuff and like of course is so worn down because like the human mind and the human body can only handle so much and yet yes has been such a survivor and is so strong to even get here and I think like to your point Stella completely just like has rolled over and like just accepted this life like she even in the first scene she's like can I go watch you bowl yeah and that is such a typical like wife role of just like I'm not even going to play I'm gonna watch you play and I have to get permission to watch yeah. you play may I watch you play and he's like all right you know like she's just a bystander in his life everything is his life and his poker games and his bowling team and his work and she's just home yeah and she doesn't do much and like it's such a, a testament of the time that that was the role of women you know when you're a wife like it's your husband's life that you just get to you're blessed to be a part of yeah the greatest gift is being able to endure yes yeah yeah there's 
<laughs> I mean, she has no friends. She, mm-hmm. he's, he's gone all the time with his job, which is also like, on one hand, what a blessing that this is not, yeah. I guess, her everyday Although Eunice and Steve, I think, are upstairs doing the same thing. Yeah. Being just as abusive. And now she's pregnant. And now, like, she's... Ugh, I know. Now, not only is there a child for Stanley to also be violent towards, when Stella is by herself, she doesn't even get that time to herself. Like, there is going to be another life that she has to put her own aside for to take care of. Right. And the fact that he's violent to her while she's carrying this child is just like, like I don't think I really sacred. I yeah. did not really grasp that the first time I read it as a teenager. I was just like, he's a wild person, you know, yeah. he's just very like, he's very eccentric. But then I like, once we kind of have gone through all of these things, like the Me Too movement and like really had like a reckoning with the behavior that we've accepted of the patriarchy I think that has brought a new lens to this play and reading it again and like watching the movie again like I remember after the Me Too movement when I went through my own like personal like reckoning of my truth and healing process going to therapy and my various like healing modalities then I was really like oh wow like Mm -hmm. Stanley is toxic masculinity, like personified. Like he is the archetype of how we got here. (laughs) These men that have been allowed (laughs) this whole time. And the, I'm still on Tumblr. And of course I'm on Old Hollywood Tumblr. And you see thirst traps about Marlon Brando playing Stan Kowalski. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful man. What? What on earth? Like, I know. Something of like, you were missing the point. You were missing the point so hard. I know. And I remember finding him attractive when I was a teenager. I was like, oh, wow, he's so hot. Like, and meanwhile, he's like literally like the epitome of all that is like wrong with society and what's overlooked just because he's sexy, you know, and his sex appeal. And like, I find that so fascinating. And now looking back, I'm like, sure, I recognize he's an attractive person, but I'm like repulsed by his character. It's disgusting. Yeah, I remember I figured I realized I was queer my senior year of high school. And I remember like looking up like you're so desperate for representation looking up like bisexual celebrities list of bisexual people throughout history and I was like oh great Marlon Brando was probably bi nice it's like just what a what a sad state yeah (laughs) it was a real reach (laughs) he's trying to find his humanity (laughs) yeah yeah I think I did read that he is where he was bi and possibly gay I don't know it's for him to know but something I really love I think then and now from a writing perspective is how masterfully Williams like doles out information bit by bit like also recently did Catcher in the Rye was editing that up until like a couple days ago there's mm-hmm. with that is so much talk about phony and authenticity and truth and I think yeah. like through all of Blanche's delusions, she is one of the most truthful characters in it. Because yes. she is able to... The only person I think she is really truly delusional about is herself. And that is because yeah. she has to be to survive. It's a self-preservation. Yeah, I was noticing that too in a lot of like the the character analysis of Blanche. Like there was one I 
like watched the, a man did mm-hmm. of her that was like oh she's like completely delusional and like she's not in touch with reality and I was like did we like yeah. watch the same thing like are you kidding me like she's the only one that's like hang on guys like yeah. what's happening here and she's brave to call it out and to say something to speak truth to people that they're all in a community together you know she's the odd person out and she still has the courage to speak the truth and to say like this is not okay with her saying like the only way you can get through to this man is with sex she enters that situation probably fully aware that this violence will be visited upon her at some point yeah and stays for as long as she does and probably for the sake of her sister because she's such a devoted person that has so much compassion for people that are of need yeah and she stays i think how much of her staying is out of obligation staying with bell reeve and everyone dying which she describes losing people as violent she says i took the blows in my face and body which i think is such a Mm -hmm. like what a way to talk about trauma like even even then and yet she is suffering so much for like the things that are really truly beautiful about her is her capacity to care and to Mm -hmm. hope and to believe that there is something better yeah and those are the things that get her carted away yeah all she's trying to do with her delusions or just speaking of these like fantasies She's just trying to create something as it ought to be. That's what she says. She's like, I don't want to say things as they are. I want to say them as they ought to be. And I think that's like, you know, powerful manifestation work. Yeah. <laughs> like That's how you make change. And, you know, she's a thought leader on that. She yeah. really has a grasp that like your mind is powerful and that if you speak things into existence and, and you say them as they ought to be, like you can help yourself through the most unthinkable realities. Everything is so out of her control. Yeah. Like, at least my mind, of all things, can try to be a safe place and a safe and comfortable yeah. place. Yeah, yes. absolutely. She's truly a magical creature that I just keep... She's like a beacon to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just... I find her so strong. And even though, like, she's described as fragile, she has a lot of strength. Oh, my God, yeah. To to live this far, to get yeah. here. Like, even... I don't know geography that well, but, like, Mississippi and Louisiana, I think, are touching. But she still has to get... Like, physically, things are so difficult for her. She gets from yeah. one place to another. Like, she's... She, yeah, and she's so tiny and frail. <laughs> yeah, and, and she it does it. Even like in 1947, even today, like there is so much danger in just a woman being on your own traveling. Oh, you know? absolutely. Something I noticed is I think in the scenes leading up to the assault, she is singing Paper Moon in the background. And the, mm-hmm. the line that she keeps repeating is like, it's something like it would be so beautiful if you'd believe in me. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Yes. <laughs> And she recognizes in herself her own worth in that end, you know, scene before the assault. Like, she's like, I know that, like, I carry the treasures of of the world in my heart and I have the capacity to love and all of these things. Like, she knows her beauty is fleeting and totally relate to being a woman over 30 and, like, clinging on to youth. But, but she also knows with that insecurity she has her worth and she has her knowledge and her love of 
culture and beauty and that's like so much that she has to offer as a person my next question is is right at the end sort of what do you make of the kindness of strangers line oh that i know it's such a elusive line i think that that line to me is based on just what she's had to go through with her family and the people that he doesn't really go into the backstory of her parents and the rest of her family but it seems like everyone has kind of been selfish in her family from from the brief descriptions that we get and it doesn't seem like anyone was as kind and sensitive as Blanche so for her I think she's really looked for that outside of her immediate family and really just depended on the kindness of strangers in that that's where she has sought out love and acceptance and being recognized and I think it really shows in that final scene with the doctor when he just the way he looks at her and it's like she feels seen like you can see and Vivian Lee is such an incredible actress Mm -hmm. that like the the way her face changes when she's like on the floor and then she's let go and then he he gives her his arm she feels like she's respected like a lady And Mm. that's totally like her element of she just needs kindness. For God's sake, just be nice to this woman. Stop. Mm. Stop beating her up. I know. And I like I almost want to read it as as a positive thing of like he's treating her with kindness. Like she is leaving the situation and maybe like in the best of worlds, maybe an institution is going to be a place with kindness. But, you know, it's not. Yeah, it's it's probably not. And, you know, I would love, in my mind, I would love that the after story of Blanche is that she's doing so much better and thriving and, like, taking care of herself. I mean, she already has such a ability for self-care with, like, her long baths and, like, she knows how to give herself what she needs and calm her nerves obviously the alcohol is not yeah. a great solution but, you're but right like she has self-soothing mechanisms she yeah has... she has the awareness yeah. for that yeah she knows that that's what she needs and i think you know for me as a, as a codependent i always feel like I need to extend myself to the outside and take care of others first. And I think that's probably something that she's felt as well, that she needs to like go outside of herself for love. And like, it's probably very hard for her to learn just to be okay as she is. Yeah. Like you said, I think has to rely on the kindness of strangers because the people close to her will not give it to her. Yeah. And having to rely on the kindness of strangers, inevitably you will be disappointed because that mm-hmm. kindness will run out because it won't go far enough because they leave your life for whatever reason. So at the same time, how often is this woman getting let down and how does yeah. that impact your own vision of yourself? And I think like, As someone who's like gone through so much healing with my trauma, I've learned that what your mind and your system is craving after a trauma will keep repeating itself and you'll keep facing these situations and these patterns that keep happening will go on forever until you face like the real solution that you need to 
to get to. And, you know, I, I hope that someday, <laughs> I know Blanche is fictional, but I still am like, I hope someday she gets to the place where yeah. she can finally face what she really needs to heal in all of this and just love herself and like realize she doesn't need to go to all these men for affection and lean on people outside of herself like she just needs some good Brene Brown and you know some (laughs) self-help books to get through it I don't know why this sort of didn't occur to me until now but like her it's not quite specified if she is like a sex worker like if she is receiving money or anything but she has is having this like revolving door of men in this hotel and it's like of course she is looking for anywhere like anything yeah any any shoulder to cry on because what what's left yeah every person that should have been there for her wasn't yeah and she's obviously like somebody that feels like she loves to be social and she loves to be a presence for others and without someone else like what is there yeah absolutely she's such a fantastic character and I'm so glad that I was able to revisit her in this way it's kind of made me realize how needed she was in my life at that time when she was introduced, you know, in the 11th grade, and then just on my own personal journey, like, it's fascinating how I've noticed that I have gravitated toward, like, people and characters that resonate, and I don't even know why. Like, I used to love Alanis Morissette, and, like, Fran Drescher, and Pamela Anderson, and now, like, Blanche Dubois, and I didn't really understand, like, exactly why I loved these these characters and learning their history that they've all gone through their own traumas and sexual traumas and the resonance that that has it's just proof of this collective consciousness that is seeking healing and that even though things are unspoken like there's a way that you move about the world when you've experienced something and that is something other people resonate with and that's what makes plays like this and art so important because it's a way to express ourselves and what we've gone through and be seen in our truth so that others can feel seen and to help others along their journey and they might not even know why it's helping them but they're like wow like I get it now one day what a gift to be not alone you know to yeah man and what a gift from that teacher oh my god oh Miss Kaiser shout out to you I actually ran into her when I was home one year and visiting my nephew at like a skating rink a roller skating rink and she came up to me and was like, oh, I remember, like, Krista, hi, how are you? And I told her, you know, I work in the arts and I'm writing now. And she was like, of course you are. You were always so artistic. And I was like, oh, oh she always saw me and just she just got it. And I'm so thankful for her for giving me all that she did. Would you consider yeah. required reading? Yeah, I would. I mean, it's it's intense for high school. I know in these times, people are very sensitive. So there's a lot of triggering topics in it. But I think for like drama school, the writing is so fantastic. And the characters, how 
perfectly he builds the tension between them and crafts each line to reveal so much and to create such a gradual escalation throughout the acts i think is some of the best playwriting out there Absolutely. So yeah, I would. And I think like what a doofus move of my public education system that trying to introduce kids to theater through Shakespeare. Love Shakespeare. Yeah. Great. So inaccessible <laughs> to young yeah. people. Just like it is such a block the language. And you get yeah. there eventually, but like not this for sixth graders, obviously. But like right. putting them in, in 21st century and 20th century theater, I think would just foster such an earlier love and appreciation for it. Yeah, and I think there's something really Shakespearean about this play and the tragedy of it all. Yeah. And the lines are just as iconic and the characters have similar archetypes and, you know, the violence and the people that just want peace and, you know, all of these sort of themes that are very Shakespearean are all throughout, so definitely just as good as yeah oh my god (laughs) way way easier to read for me (laughs) yeah as a seventh grader I did not understand the comedy of errors and that's also just a very confusing play yeah (laughs) I don't think I read that one I think we read Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth and that was it we did those two that was ninth and tenth grade we were supposed to do much ado about nothing in eighth grade and our teacher who's amazing was undergoing like breast cancer and radiation therapy and so at the end of the year she was just like guys i'm gonna put on a, a movie of it please let that be enough and we were like miss Bass, yeah you crawled through a window one time we love you you can do it <laughs> wow. she, she like rode a moped to school and we had our first period and one time she was like a little late and I was like, I can't get in. I can't get in. They locked me out. And so we opened oh the window God. for her to get out there. And she like couldn't get her That's helmet amazing. through. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That reminds me of one of my English teachers, Miss Borst. She was like short and like shorter than most students. And like a lot of people thought she was a student. And like she told us, she's like, one day I want to live in an earth ship. We were just like, what are you talking yeah. about? And like, now it's like a really, it makes sense. Like, you know, years later, I'm like, she was ahead of her time that like mm-hmm. earth ships are like made of all like used material, reused materials. And like, it's very like eco-friendly and like sustainable. It's it's a house that sustains itself. And I'm like, brilliant. That's where visionary. we should be. Yeah. yeah. She's a total visionary. We all should want earth ships. <laughs> There's just so many great lines. Oh my god. It is a text that you can you can spend. I'm yeah. sure someone out there has been like spend a whole semester on just this play. Yeah. And I get it. Like Blanche's lines are just so good. Like the little there is belongs to people that experience some sorrow. Like ugh, just so good. I made notes about like Mitch's judgment of Blanche, how in the beginning he was like poker shouldn't be played in a house with women. And then he later is telling Blanche, like, you're not clean enough to be in the house with my mother. And these sort of, like, just blanket judgments of, like, poker is too filthy to be played with women. But now Blanche is so filthy she can't be in the house with his mother. So essentially he's relating her. Like, she's as filthy as, like, gambling and poker. Yeah. Yeah, like, she's this, like, seedy person that, like... And that, like, 
he really truly sees her as, as something beautiful and then receives like one piece of information and completely yeah. Yeah, and it's so easy for him to just be like, oh, now you're a soiled woman Mm -hmm. that is no longer fit to even be in a house with my mom. Like, what? My mother who's almost dead. Literally, she would be, (laughs) ask your mother. She would be thrilled. She'd be like, every woman has a past. Let her in. (laughs) I'll accept her with open arms. I guarantee Mitch didn't even speak to his mother about this. It's his own bias that, like, Mm -hmm. he feels she's unfit because he has these, like, preconceived notions in his head of what's okay and what's not okay yeah that was something that really like i was really rooting for mitch but then after that i was like and then he tries to like you know he's like oh i want to do other things with you and that i was just like okay so now she's not clean enough to be with in the house with your mom but you'll still like what yeah what a disappointment anything else you wanted to talk about no, I think that's all. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Where can people find you if you want to be found? So you can find me mostly on Instagram these days at Krista.moy is my handle. I'm sometimes on Twitter. You can <laughs> fleetingly um, at Moy Tweets World. Instagram, I post where I'm doing my latest shows, stand up and uh, all that stuff. Yeah, come find me, read my stuff. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a delight to revisit and such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was such a gift and I love required reading. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's the best podcast of 2023. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, man. On that, have a good night. Thank you so much. (laughs) I've had such a delight revisiting my childhood and just like going into that time in my life and just being like, what was I thinking and doing? Like, it was just so interesting to to unfold all of it. That's what matters to me is is I want to I want to give something to you, you know. And that's it. That's the episode. This episode is coming out on my birthday. Thanks. Next week... Next week is Twilight by Stephanie Meyer with special guest April Consolo. You know, I only have a couple hours to post this on time on Wednesday, so I gotta go. Love ya! This is... Aaron, you can find me everywhere at Aaron R. Bowles. The R stands for riches an embarrassment of riches to live another year all right something weird is happening on csi i gotta go bye love ya